Okay, everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Bobby and Yen's. Today, we are coming to you from Tucson, Arizona. We are here attending the L Tour of Tucson prologue and actual event on Saturday. This is the first time that we've done a podcast like this on location, and believe it or not, I think this is our 95th episode. This is the first time that Jens and I have been in the same room. Uh, before we go any further, I want to say a special thank you to the El Tour of Tucson, to Pam Alexander, and to TJ Juskowitz, the executive director of El Tour of Tucson. This is the 39th edition, so uh, thank you very much for, for everything that you've done and putting us all together. In the room, or at least at this camp, we have quite a few Bobby and Yen's alumni. So, Brendan Quirk from USA Cycling, George Hincafe, Christian Vanderveld, Mari Holden, Rasan Bahati. I hope I'm not leaving anyone out, but uh, hopefully we'll have some of you as future guests in a bit. So, without further ado, we would like to introduce to you our special guest who is absolutely winging it with us on the fly today. Mrs. Kristen Armstrong. Kristen, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's so great to be part of your podcast and just to, I don't know, be in the same room with you guys. So, Kristen, let's just start at the very beginning. What was your first introduction to cycling? How do you get into cycling and not into baseball, football, or hockey? And who, who, was, who was it that inspired you? Your parents, like a cycling hero of your youth? How do you get there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, I think that in America we do grow up um, with a ball in our hand when we're born. And I did play ball sports. I was a soccer player. I actually ran a half mile in, on the track. And I did that through high school and graduated high school. I went to college. I walked on the track team, ran the half mile, um, decided it wasn't super fun anymore. So I played intramurals. I was a sorority girl. Yep, a sorority girl. Um, people are always surprised about that for some reason. Um, but from there, after college, I actually just got a normal job, and I thought, this is what you do. This is what the textbook says. You graduate from college, you work, and uh, eventually you have a family, and that's what I was just always raised to believe. And then after a few years of working, I realized I didn't have that, that after-school practice anymore, and I looked in the mirror one day, and I was like, holy moly, I probably need to exercise a little bit. Wasn't sure what to do. I had a swimming background, a running background. And my friend, my dear friend, she, she dared me to do a triathlon with her. And it was a 400-meter swim. It was a six-mile bike ride, and it was a two-mile run. And I had my mountain bike. It was my commuter bike that sat in the back of my sorority house for like four years, untouched. Yeah, we all have those. And um, I got on that, the swim, I, I had a pretty good swim, and got on that bike. And I was cocky enough to think that I had cages on my pedals and I had knobby tires and these people they got on their bike and they just zoomed past me like I was standing still and I said to myself it's okay because I'm a pretty quick runner I'm going to get off and I don't have to change my shoes I'm definitely going to get off the bike and I'm going to run I'm going to run really fast I had the worst side cramp ever I walked for about a mile of the two miles and I told myself that day that I'm never going to be that humiliated again in my life And that is really what prompted me into the sport of triathlon. And so then from triathlon, um, I went on, I competed nationally, um, went and lived at Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. I had a, a bunch of hip problems that didn't allow me to run any longer. And so I went back to normal life because I 
remember telling somebody one time, if I'm ever competing at the age of 30 or older, please shake me. Like, tell me what is wrong with you. Like, just put me back where I'm supposed to be, which is in a regular job. So um, went back to my normal job in Boise, Idaho. And at that time is when the Hewlett Packard Women's Challenge came to Idaho. It was the largest women's cycling race in the world. It was the most lucrative cycling race. It had a $75,000 prize purse. And I was local, and they actually invited the local team. I was on a team called Goldie's Breakfast Bistro. And I got approached, and they said, hey, Kristen, would you join our team to compete in the Women's Challenge? And I said, not in a million years have you seen these ladies that come to town. I've been watching them, like, for 10 years. No, thank you. Oh, come on, Kristen, it's just one race. And I was like, oh. So I signed up. I took all of my vacation days, nine days. I would train at night with a headlamp on. Every night after work, I'd put that on. I would go around in this circle that I had. And then on the weekends, I would go out for the longer rides, and I would memorize the mile marker sign so that when I got dropped, I knew how to get to the finish line. Because I knew that that was going to happen. Um, lo and behold, I entered the Women's Challenge. And by the end of the Women's Challenge, I had three contract offers. And I um, signed on and um, rode with um, T-Mobile. Mari Holden's here today, and she was my teammate. And so when you asked me who I looked up to, cycling wasn't really what I thought I was going to become. It, there was an opportunity, and I'm very much into when you see opportunity, if you recognize opportunity, you take risk. When you recognize opportunity, a lot of great things can happen, no matter what it is. And so I took risk. I, I took opportunity, and I was riding with what I consider the top women's team in, in the nation. So that's my start. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, that's a pretty hard one to top there. But So we're talking like this was 2003. It was 2002 as a race. I signed my first contract with T-Mobile for 2003. Mm -hmm. Wow, so straight, straight into the big time. Yeah, I was, tw I was 29 years old. I'm still 29 years old, but I mean, I know you guys were confused. I saw the look. I, I know you're shocked. Yin said, Bobby, I, I know, I've aged well. <laughs> you absolutely do. No question Speech about it. Speechless, speechless. Good answer coming from a male. Yeah. I, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around this because, like, cycling is always about progression and get this and then you move up another level and you just did basically your, your first race and got three contract offers. Do you remember what those other three teams were? Yes, I had a contract offer from T-Mobile, from Saturn and from Rona. Rona was the Canadian team with John Viev was riding for, for, for Rona and at the time Saturn was sort of the powerhouse of America. However, when T-Mobile started their team, um, they had taken a lot of the Saturn riders they had transferred over, such as like Didi Demet and uh, Kimberly Bruckner, Baldwin now, so Mari Holden. But I'm just thinking it must have been so overwhelming, and you probably had so many questions. And we do a lot of these events with, you know, yes, we used to race our bikes, but there's a lot of people that come here for participation. Um, that level of understanding is, is maybe difficult for them but very easy for us. But what were some of your like real questions at the start there? Because you went from zero to a hundred pretty quick and all of a sudden you're racing for T-Mobile. Um, was there someone that you could pull aside and say, hey, 
is this okay? Should I put my clothes on like this or should I put my arm warmers on like that? Absolutely. You know, I um, was told, you know, you go out and you start learning the cycling community. And so locally, I mean, there was many times where somebody was like, so I remember one of the tips I had from a local group ride, um, they would start off in like three groups and there was like the, the fast group, the medium group, and then they didn't want to call it like the third group, the slow group. And I'll never forget the first time I showed up to a local ride where it was sort of like structured. I was so nervous. I didn't know. I was like, well, which group should I go in? Like, should I? And they were like taken off. And this one lady, I'll never forget. She looked at me and she's like, yeah, you should probably go in the third group. And I was like, and I was right in between. I was so competitive and so upset. I hopped down to the second group. I'm like, because she went in the second group. I'm like, I'm not, she's not getting it with that. She just told me to go to the third group. So then there was times where um, I had my cycling shoes were from my triathlon days. So they just have the one strap. And I remember a cyclist, a true cyclist, basically um, advised me that maybe when I show up to group rides, I should purchase another style of shoe because it was very obvious that I was a triathlete. And that just sort of kind of was a radar of like a beacon saying, uh, be careful for this lady. Um, and then also just my whole, this whole, whole sock thing. Um, you know, I didn't wear socks as a triathlete. So, and then when I did wear socks, they were really the small socks. And so I was advised to maybe lift my socks a little bit in length. So just like things like that. And, and the numbers don't go on the helmet anymore. And we don't draw numbers on our, our arms or legs. So. There's so many of those little unwritten rules that the older I get, I realize it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> you know, Rasan is like the king of fashion. And like, I'm just going to start doing what he does, dressing how he dresses. I mean, George is always too, you know, he's got, he's got his white jersey on. He's got his white shoes. He's got his Saturday bike. You know, he, he just, <laughs> it, it's just this combination of style. But bottom line, it's, uh, it's just getting out there and actually being, being active, right? It is. It, you know, it is um, everything, everything you do, no matter what, when you first start it, it's, it's a very scary venture. Um, but when you get in, you realize, just like we realize here in El Tour, like the community is so strong and it is so welcoming. But again, it's just, it's just taking that first step. It's kind of just being a little bit daring for that first try. So we talked 2002, you have a regular job, you train after your job with your headlights on your helmet. Then you sign a full-on professional contract. When in the next year, when was the first moment you thought, hey, I actually could be world-class at this? When did you realize I'm actually better than I thought right away or half of the season or years after? Or when was the first time you thought, hey, I'm actually good at this? <laughs> well, it was interesting because um, it was definitely on a fast track. You know, the Olympic Games were uh, coming up in 2004 and, you know, we had all the all-stars on, on T-Mobile. And, and so um, I ended up qualifying through, uh, it was a, they, at the time, it wasn't nationals, but it was an Olympic qualifier in Redlands. And so I was, uh, I would say 100% a dark horse. And so was set up to be an instigator and, um, Myself and Christine Thorburn had ridden off the front and, you know, I had it, the day it was an automatic spot to Athens. So that was the first time where I thought, uh, wow, this could be actually a long term, uh, you know, kind of career for me. And I was still trying to get over the fact I was 29 years old and I was still thinking, how in the world does somebody go past 29 years old? Because my first year I was offered zero uh, dollars and my second year I was offered 18,000. So I signed a two-year contract. 
But at that time, you know, it was hard because you're trying to figure out how you're actually going to buy groceries and, and, and pay for your apartment. So it was definitely very difficult. And I think that, you know, in, in women's cycling, it continued to be difficult for my entire career. I, I as I want to say, I graduated. I uh, retired in 2016 after making two comebacks. But as far as salaries go, you know, just to be transparent, I, I've never, I never was on a team that I made six figures. So that's just being super transparent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, we had Sheena Palace on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she kind of explained what she had to do to make ends meet. What did she say? She was an Uber driver. She was doing all this other stuff just to make it work when guys basically sign a contract and that's all they do. Um, but getting back to the day, the time I met you was in Athens of 2004, and we're staying in that house, and all of a sudden there's a little bit of drama a little bit of tension going on. And it was right before the, the time trial. Mm -hmm. Explain a little bit about what went on with that selection for the two time trial spots that the USA women had for that event. Yeah, so what had happened was back at the Olympic qualifier, the winner of the road race got the spot for the road race. Um, as far as the time trial went, um, Didi Demet had her, she had solidified her spot, not only for the road race, because she had actually ranked in the top in the UCI. It was either top 10 or top 15 in the UCI at the time. And then as well, um, she had earned the time trial spot. Um, so the interesting thing was is that there was one spot left, and it came down to a coach's selection. And there was a lot of conversations back in the day that, um, that happened between coaches. So Jim Miller... He was the director of T-Mobile at the time. And he and um, Christine Thorburn's coach at the time, so that was Max Testa, they, our numbers, our power numbers, because they're thinking, well, how in the world are we ever going to choose between Christine and Kristen? They were so close uh, as far as the, the power output. The head-to-heads were, were so close, and they were having a really difficult time trying to figure out who is going to be uh, the best representation for Athens. So as athletes and as coaches, we all made a decision that there was one time trial leading up to the Olympic Games. And it was two weeks before the Olympic Games. It was called Turgen. It was in Germany. And we were all told that um, whichever athlete ends up on top is going to take the spot. And we all agreed. And at the time, I had... Um, Went to Turgen. I beat Christine um, at Turgen by about 25 seconds, and so that was that was the selection. I was it was known that I was going to go to the time trial. I was on the phone telling my um, boyfriend at the time, "Hey, bring my time trial bike." You know, like we all all this. Uh, Christine was on the phone with Ted saying, "Hey, you know, um, don't bring." you know, my stuff, because it's just how it is. So leading into Athens, we get to the Olympic Village, and um, the, selection the selection committee had met, and they ultimately had chosen Christine. So the day before the opening ceremonies, I was told that I was not going to do the time trial. So um, at that time, it was really difficult, because I was... Uh, fairly young in the sport, so I wouldn't say I was young in general, but I was young in the sport. 
And I was uh, sponsored by a big team, and so immediately the advice I had been given on the back end was that I need to arbitrate. When you're at the Olympic Games and you are thinking that you're going to do an event, and when a boss tells you to arbitrate, you sort of just go, you kind of become fuzzy and you kind of become somewhat of a robot. So I decided, awesome, like, okay, let's just fight this. Let's do it because, you know, we're, we're fighters. This is why we're, we are where we are in the sport. And it caused a lot of disruption. Um, it was, uh, you know, in hindsight, it, it, it blew up uh, the team somewhat because there were, when you arbitrate, it not only affects the person that took the spot, but it affects the entire team. So it affects Didi, it affects Christine. And so the entire experience was uh, a little bit, I would say, in shambles. Um, and so after this, I, um, I, I pulled away from the arbitration, hoping to, to change the feelings. And unfortunately, those feelings, uh, they, they weren't changed because those cha- don't change overnight because we were all kind of trying to scramble for a lawyer while we were in Athens. But honestly, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, Didi and Christine, they ended up doing the time trial. Um, the road race was first. And, you know, we, we worked great as a team. I ended up, you know, in, in eighth, and there was a breakaway up the road. And then the time trial day, I'll never forget, one of my best, most important lessons, I remember my husband saying, or my boyfriend at the time, he said, you know, Kristen, um, I said, we just need to go home. He's like, you know, you need to go out and support your teammates. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went out and, and watched them race, but um, I will never forget that, if you know my husband, he is the guy behind my bike. My bike was always the lightest bike, probably against not only the men, but also the women. It was the most dialed-in bike. Probably you could have titanium screws, like you name it. We were always on the leading edge. When it came to wheels um, in Athens, I had, most people had, you know, heavy, heavier kind of discs at the time. Um, I had brought, I'll never forget these really lightweight zip discs. Like it was like leading edge and I'll never forget. Um, they had national team equipment and I let Dee Dee borrow my, my wheel. Um, she, 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 um, ended up winning silver that day. And, uh, it was, it was definitely a lesson. Um, but it is what it is. It's history. And, uh, it motivated me to, to go on and, um, yeah, so you know, sport, I think, always seems easy on the outside. And, and I've been told a lot of times, like you all alluded to in the beginning, how you just fast-tracked it, you know, so simple. But sport is never simple. <laughs> and though sometimes we genetically are blessed um, that we have maybe a little bit of an edge when it comes to, like, an aerobic engine, I will say that. But at the end of the day, um, there's always a story behind the story. And so, yeah, that's one of my chapters. I have an easier question, which is my favorite question because it is so inspiring. So you win your first Olympic gold medal, you retire, come back, win another gold medal, retire again, give birth to a child, come back and win another gold medal. You made it look so easy. How did that happen and what went through your mind? Retiring, coming back, gold medal, retiring again, coming back, another gold medal. So take us us through all this. So in 2008, you know, I, I really let up from 2004. I wanted to do it differently. I felt like um, 
I participated in 2004. I, I made the team. I wasn't supposed to make the team. I was a dark horse. Um, you know, a lot of things happened. I went and I experienced my first Olympic Games, and it was quite amazing, you know, in, in general, because once you're an Olympian, you're always an Olympian. So just the fanfare and the clothing, and it was just, like I said, it was an experience. But the next four years, I, I said to myself and my team, I just, I want to I wanna do something now. I actually want to show up and compete. It sounds weird, but sometimes we make a cutoff and we make a team, but we don't really take it to the next level. I wanted to take it to the next level, so got in the wind tunnel and, and really started kind of nailing in all of these little aspects that were going to help me do that. So I win my first gold medal uh, in Beijing in 2008, and um, from there, I wanted to celebrate in 2009 as a cyclist because wearing the World Championship stripes is quite an honor. And so I was advised, hey, you don't want to retire when you're a world champion. That's crazy. So I continued to wear the jersey in 2009. I retired. I really wanted to have a family. And so at the time, you know, I was 36 years old, and I was getting a little bit nervous, like, well, am I going to be able to have a family if I wait any longer? And definitely I don't want to wait four more years. So I retired, and I truly was, I was finished because I always was under the belief that when you're a mom, you're a mom, and you really shouldn't you know, continue. I, I saw parents in the sport and with kids and I was like, come on, like you should, you should, you know, it's time to, to raise your family. And so I'm a hypocrite now. I'm admitting I'm a hypocrite, but so I, I was lucky enough. I got, I got pregnant in 2009. I delivered Lucas 2010 in September and I'll never forget in the back end. Uh, my coach texted me and said, well, what do you think? 22 months. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I had like still a couple weeks before I delivered. And he's like, wouldn't that be an amazing goal? And I'm like, are you kidding? Have you seen me lately? Like I am as big as a house and there's no way I'm riding my bike anywhere near like London. And so I deliver Lucas and about a week after no sleep, I get a text message from my coach and he says, so have you given it any more thought? We're down to 21 months. And I was like, and so after like a few weeks, I looked at my husband and I was like, why are you laughing about this? And he's like, well, we kind of have a bet. He's like, because the last charity ride we did in August when you're nine months pregnant, I texted him and I'm like, you are not finished. You try to half wheel everybody and you're nine months pregnant and I just know you still have it in you. And I was like, whatever. So anyway, so it was just a, a totally different journey going into, into London, being a mom, um, packing, you know, my pack and play, uh, Bob Stroller, you know, wondering if I have my bike with me or not. But it was very different. I'll never forget, you know, my first race, you know, still breastfeeding and, um, you know, handing my husband Lucas. And then at the finish line, he's like, here, take him, you know, and. I'll never forget, like, going back to the trailer and, uh, you know, all my teammates were like, oh, when's massage? And, like, I don't really want mayonnaise on my sandwich. And I'm like, I want a ma I'm not going to get a massage or a sandwich today. Um, you know, being a mom, it's like it's quality training over quantity. And, you know, one of the most important steps I, I took in London was teams don't just accept moms traveling with their kids. And so um, Nicola, who um, is here today as well with us, she has a program that allowed me a platform that allowed me to travel with my husband and, and my son. So 
it was an environment that was uh, very supportive. So if I didn't have Lucas in my hands, one of my teammates would, would be, be having or pushing Lucas or um, sitting in the car uh, behind me in the race when it was pouring rain. So the environment was really important. But after that, you know, I was done. I, I retired, like Yin said. I retired again. Um, and this time I, I was done. I wanted to actually just have a normal job. I went to work for a hospital, and I was a director of community health, and I worked in sports medicine, and uh, that, didn't, that wasn't that much fun for long because it was like a corporate job. It was like, oh, boy, riding my bike was so much easier. Um, so anyway, I, I was having some hip problems, like I mentioned, in triathlon, and Afterwards, I, I started trying to see if I can get my hips taken care of. And in 2013, I had three hip surgeries. And so after that, I, I kept going and never thought I was going to compete again. I was still riding my bike for fun. But I, in 2000, let's see, in 2015, I looked at my husband and I said, you know, it'd be really fun just to have another goal. I'm working full time. He's like, well, what are you talking about? I said, like, you know, marathoners, like, they pick, like, two or three marathons to do a year. I don't see why I couldn't just pick a couple races. And he's like, well, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, I don't know, like, Nationals time trial. He's like, no, we are not going back. We are not doing this again. I'm like, it's not a big deal. It's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I just trained for one event. No big deal. He's like, okay. So I go, I train. And I didn't really mention that if I win nationals, it's an automatic to Worlds. Mm -hmm. And Worlds happens to be in Richmond, Virginia in 2015. So that kind of slipped my mind to tell him. So I went to nationals and I won nationals. And he's like, we're done, right? And I was like, well, you're not going to believe this, but Worlds are in Richmond. And he's like, well, okay, here's the deal. Top three at World Championships gets you the Olympic Games. He's like, if we don't do this, we are not going through another coach's select. We are not, we're done. We're just done. You got it? Got it. So I trained to Richmond, go to Richmond, and I get fifth. But I'm the top American. And I'm like, hey, hey, hey. I'm the top American. Like, I'm fifth. Like, and so anyway, just kind of like on repeat, I come back, <laughs> and uh, I just had this mission in 2016, and um, yeah, I just went for it, and it did come down to coach selection, and I had a little bit of experience. I was arbitrated. I got chosen for the team. I was arbitrated, but this time I, I hired my own lawyer, and $32,000 later, um, hours of arbitration, two weeks before Rio, I was, I was chosen to, to compete. So it was definitely uh, after Rio when I won by five seconds in a 44-minute race, it was definitely time for me to be done. And I think as an athlete, sometimes it's really difficult to make these decisions on your own and have closure. But I, I, I couldn't have had better closure. And so now I uh, definitely am coaching and, and, and have coached a couple people in the Tokyo games and coaching people for Paris and, and LA. So uh, it's, it's amazing to have the baton passed. And my first athlete who uh, won a bronze medal went to Tokyo and, and to, to be able to pass on this baton has just been incredible. 
So now this one goes out to our live audience here. We all just listen to that, right? We have the year 2022. I'm taking bets that she's at the start line in LA 2028. <laughs> Anybody else want to take that bet? Honestly. <laughs> I got some winter travel plans and I wanted to share one trick I use to get ready. I open up the Trail Forks app, find the region I'm headed to, and check the popularity heat map. It's an easy way to see local favorites at a glance, and it's based on real data, not ratings. It's how I can confidently plan which trails to hit on my next trip. Right now, you can save 40% of global access to the popularity heat map and the entire TrailFox app with TrailFox Pro. Prices go up after November 28, so don't miss out on this holiday sale. Trail Forks Pro unlocks online access to the Trail Forks app anywhere. It's perfect for mountain biking, but it's also got tons of winter activities on the trails covered, like fat biking, Nordic skiing, snowshoeing, snowmobiling, and more. There are winter-specific layers like snow grooming and the snow forecast, and of course, favorite features like trail reports and activity recording. This 40% off deal is for Trail Forks Pro with Outside Plus, so you get to bundle up with all the goods from the outside network. That includes unlimited digital content from brands like Outside, Value News, Ski and Backpacker. I'm checking out the Winter Gear Guide right now to find my next pair of skis. Like I mentioned, prices are only going up after November 28th. Find out more and get 40% off at trailforks.com slash podcast. Well, I mean, not many people get to go to the Olympics. Not many people win one gold medal um, or a second gold medal. But this last comeback in 2016, would you have been happy with second place? Or was it gold all the way? Because anybody that meets you, anyone that talks to you, anyone that rides with you instantly understands that you are competitive. But would that have been, would it, would it, would that have been it if you didn't win in 2016? Because that's the easiest mic drop of them all. Yeah. To win three Olympic medals and be like, ciao. Yeah, it's really interesting you ask that question because when I look back in hindsight and the risk I took to actually come back even for a second one, I don't even know what I was thinking about. I don't even know what I was thinking because, no, I wouldn't have been happy. And so I was so scared going into Rio, so nervous that the road race happens always on a Sunday and the time trial is always on a Wednesday. And so you only have two days to recover. And at this time... It's one day before I turned 43. I know I'm still 29 to you guys. It was one day bef before I turned 43. And the recovery, so I went into the road race and I was so nervous about how I would place in the time trial. I had so much disbelief in myself for Rio that um, I worked so hard for my teammates in the road race. It was like an out-of-body experience. When people saw me work in the road race for Mara, I think everyone was probably a little bit concerned on how or if I would ever be able to recover. But it was my way because the U.S. team hadn't meddled in the road race since Connie Carpenter. 
in 84. And so for me, all I wanted to do was to show that Team USA, the road team, could actually get on that podium. So if I could end my career with a U.S. rider teammate on the podium in a road race, that was history. And I was going to take it. I was already preparing for a little bit of failure in the time trial. In the time trial, um, I think I took every risk possible. It was pouring rain when I woke up. And I told myself when I woke up, it was pouring rain. And I thought, here it goes. Nobody wants to race a time trial in the rain. But this race, the stars are aligning because I have more experience than anyone in a rating time trial that's going to start that morning. So instead of waking up and having the glass half empty attitude, I said, I'm taking this one. So I took every risk on, on that course, downhill risk you, you can imagine, just to kind of, I laid it all out there. And uh, with the second time check, I was uh, two seconds down. And I just remember my coach in my ear, he said, you have 5K to the finish line. And he's like, it's up to you now. I've done everything I can. He's like, you can decide what color you end with. You're going to be on the podium today. What color do you want to end your career with? And I was like, whew, out of, I was, I don't even know what that looked like at the end, but it was, I don't even remember, you know, those, those moments you don't remember. You're like, yeah, it's just that day. I always tell people you have to, you remember the journey very clearly, but sometimes that day, I just don't remember very well. <laughs> So would that have been the best day in your career, finishing on the absolute high and then retiring? And a follow-up question, after you came back home, were you ever tempted to never touch the bike again for 10 years? It was, a, it was the best day to have closure, because I finally, it was, it was something I'm searching for, because uh, when you retire twice, it, it's, it's tough. Um, but obviously I didn't have closure, so it was great to have closure. I think the best day on my bike ever was when I had my son on the podium with me in London because it was against all protocol. Like, you're not allowed to have your kid on the podium. <laughs> and so that, that was really cool. Um, but as far as tempted not to ever touch my bike again, that's, that's, I'm, I love my bikes and I have every bike you can imagine. And I have to say, Jens, that there hasn't been a day even after the hardest days that I haven't looked in my garage and, and said to myself, which bike am I going to ride today? Because it's always been an outlet for me. It's, it's mental health. It's, it's how I relax. Um, I love to ride with people, but I, I really love to ride by myself um, because it really clears my mind. Wow. <laughs> that, that is such a special story because Jens and I were teammates and really close friends, even to this day, with Fabian Cancellara. Mm -hmm. And he had an amazing victory in 2016 mm -hmm. Rio Olympics and also dropped the mic and retired. I think your story beats his, um, <laughs> I hate to have to say. But you mentioned her before, and we would like now to do another Bobby and Jens first, which is actually have a second guest, uh, Nicola Cranmer. She is a very close friend. She's one of the best people that I know. She obviously had a lot of influence. What I'd love to hear about how you worked around Christian's schedule. I mean, you're here taking care of young women. And you once told me that 
my goal is not to turn them into professional athletes, but to be professional people. So with that in mind, give us a little story of how you guys work that out and the relationship that you have. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you, everybody. And, you know, um, Kristen does have an amazing story, and I'm really honored to be a part of her journey. Um, we actually met for the very first time in Beijing in 2007. Um, we were at a test event and uh, for the Olympics. And, um, you know, I was with one of my young riders, Shelly Olds, and uh, we were like, oh, there's Kristen Armstrong. Let's go talk to her. And um, we, you know, we struck up conversation, Kristen. Anyone that knows Kristen, she's really easy to talk to and super approachable. And that was the beginning of our journey. Um, so we stayed in touch and she went on to win her medal in Beijing. And shortly after that, I approached Kristen and development has always been a big passion. Um, I've been running a team for 18 years and, you know, I knew that Kristen was going to be leaving the sport and I wanted her to stay in it. So she had, you know, already such amazing experiences to share with um, youth development. And we had a smaller junior team at the time. And I said, hey, Kristen, have you ever thought about directing and or just being a part of our youth program? And she said, oh, you know, send me some information about it and I'll take a look. And, you know, shortly thereafter, she bought into, the, into it. And it wasn't long after that that um, she got pregnant and she came on the road with the team. Um, we were both in the team car and we'd follow in the caravan and she'd be pregnant and, you know, expecting her son any minute. And, you know, <laughs> we sort of spent a lot of time together. And through that time, I think that, you know, I got to know Kristen really well and she is so driven and so focused and so detail oriented. And when it comes to high performance, she just, you know, she did her due diligence. I mean, she did everything possible to become a champion. And it was something that I wanted her to impart on our next generation of athletes. So she quickly became the director of the team and then high performance director. And, you know, we had some incredible athletes along the way. And a lot of them started off as juniors, like Jennifer Valente, who just recently won world championships and also an Olympic gold medal. Chloe Diger, um, who Kristen went on to coach. And so, you know, she's been a part of my life um, and we're best friends and we talk many times a day, every day. <laughs> and she just has brought so much to the sport and continues to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when she came back um, as an athlete, it was, you know, just amazing to have her as part of the team. Um, again, it, we created a very different environment. I think it's why we've been so successful. Um, the team over the last 18 years has produced 14 Olympic medals from our athletes. And, you know, we create an environment where really the athlete has the latitude to script their own season, um, which makes it really hard on me sometimes, but it's, it's what works for high performance. And, you know, just allowing someone to be a mom, allowing someone to have a job, allowing someone to be in school. Um, women love multitasking. Um, you know, really when you look at a woman's training schedule, they're not doing five, six, seven hour rides. Sometimes it's two hours a day. So what are you doing the rest of the day? You know, they love to be productive. So, so Kristen talked about the support network you built up for her and um, bringing her son. Um, was that something that 
did grow naturally or you had to be a boss? Hey, corporate decision. We all support Kristen and her family now. Or how did that come along and how did everybody support or not support it? What, what were the challenges for that? I mean, it's one of the first times ever, right? That you with traveling with your baby at a world-class uh, level. Yeah, it was, um, it was really easy, actually. I mean, Lucas, her son, is just a joy. I mean, he sort of came out smiling and he just has a sense of humor And he was really easy. And, and one of the things that I noticed really quickly, uh, we had a young Corinne Rivera on the team who was a junior at the time and some other you know, high-performance athletes. When Lucas was around, everyone was smiling. And it was really, um, you know how you see like at the Kentucky Derby, you've got the pony that rides next to the thoroughbred. I mean, <laughs> Lucas was kind of like that. He was almost a, a pacifier to you know, these women that are about to perform and do the best they can. And it was very calming. So it was very easy. I mean, sometimes it was just funny. I mean, one perfect example was, I have a great photo of Kristen after she won her gold medal. And by the way, I was the one that run, ran her son to the podium across Hampton Court after the time trial. And it was kind of terrifying because we were told we weren't allowed to, but I did it anyway. Um, but after the ceremony, Kristen got off the podium and we were in a taxi going somewhere. And She's got the gold medal around her neck and she's changing her son's diaper. And uh, so, you know, we just really integrated it into what we, what we did. And right now, um, some of you have met one of my Cuban athletes, uh, Marlise Mejias, who's here. And she has a three-year-old daughter and we're doing the same all over again. She's part of our team. Um, she comes to the races and yeah, it, it works for us. That, that's amazing. I mean, there's no real template made for that no it's very unique yeah <laughs> just on on the fly yeah um but you know it's like really identifying how how does someone reach their peak performance and if it's having their baby along for the ride then so be it you know let's do this it just does not compute in my male brain that that's possible because we would do the tour de france and on the rest days our wives and kids would come And I never slept in or allowed them to come into the room for more than an hour because I just felt like it was distracting. I couldn't imagine having your son there and with the Olympic gold medal on, changing the diapers. But we all know that women are much stronger than men and can multitask in many, many different ways than we can. But I mean, that's, that's amazing. But have you ever heard, I've never heard of that in any other example. Is that, are, are other women kind of maybe doing the same thing or thinking about the same thing? Or is this absolutely a Nicola Kramer, Kristen Armstrong one-off? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't see it. And, you know, Kristen really taught me how to, uh, we call it mapping, how to basically reach your high-performance goal. And we look at, obviously, you take your, your goal and work backwards from there and create a pathway. And if it includes a child or a job or anything, I mean you know, that's what you do. That's what you do. No compromising. I mean, we will just make it work. One of the cool things about <clears throat> your team is over the years, you've changed the number after the team or after the sponsor to coincide with the year of the Olympics. So did, was it, did it start in 2012? Mm -hmm. 2012, then it was 2016, 2020. Obviously now you are Virginia's Blue Ridge Team 24. Team 24. 2024. Yeah. Yep. So what can we expect 
from your team? I mean, we're two, two years away from the Olympics in Paris. Um, 2028 is a huge thing in American cycling because it's the return of the Olympics in Los Angeles. So give us a little bit of the phase plan and your expectations moving forward to not only the next Olympic Games, but in, in Los Angeles as well. Yeah, well, I, I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 18 years and I thought this would be my last Olympic cycle, 2024. And then my juniors on the team, I have 30 juniors at the moment, which is the most we've had ever. Um, it, it was something that happened during COVID and a lot of girls got on bikes and they just needed to be a part of something and have a sense of community. They were in school. And so I couldn't say no to any resume I got. They were like, hey, we want to be on your team. Like, okay. <laughs> so I have 30. Um, but, you know, they keep reminding me, hey, we could go to LA Olympics. Like, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to be proper old by the time that comes around. <laughs> like, you know, I've been doing this for so long, but honestly, it's such my passion. And, you know, I, I took a couple of years off um, still ran the team, but we diverted a little bit and did a lot of gravel racing. And that was really driven by the athletes on the team. Um, you know, even Jennifer Valente after Tokyo, she's like, hey, I want to do Leadville. I'm like, okay, let's go to Leadville. Um, and it was less about high performance after Tokyo and really more of a mental break for me as well. And I went out and to the, all the big gravel races around the U.S. and really got excited about the new community that was being built, um, the sort of inclusivity of all types of athletes and all ages of athletes. And it was really inspiring to me um, to see that growth again. Um, but shortly after that, you know, I, my real passion is in performance. And, you know, Kristen is the one that has, has driven that for us. And we work very closely together still. And she coaches some of our athletes. So we've got some very exciting new American riders that um, are on the team for next year. Um, one that was a recent discovery, I found her on Swift. Um, she's a rower from Columbia. Uh, she works as a data analyst in New York City. Um, and she is really, really strong. And I'm gonna have Kristen coach her. And you know, I'm really inspired now. I mean, I don't know if we can fast track her to Paris, but maybe to LA. Well, we wish you all the best in, in that. Obviously, everybody, all the ladies that you coached owe you a huge debt. We're so proud of you, you. for doing what you do because we know that often it goes unnoticed. Um, so thank you so much for everything that you've done for women cycling. Thank you, Kristen. I mean, it's amazing having you on the podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks again to Kristen and Nicola for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bellow News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. I know you have already heard a little bit about Trail Forks from Bobby and me, but there's a big 40% off sale now until November 28. And I'm also pretty excited about the winter ahead. Sure, I use Trail Forks all the time for mountain biking, but it's also got tons of features and layers for the winter. If you're headed out bat biking or Nordic skiing, 
Use the snow grooming layer to find trails nearby. You can also check out the snow forecast right in the app. See slope angle and the avalanche forecast and filter the map for all kinds of winter activities from snowmobiling to snowshoeing. And you get to bundle up with Outside Plus. That means your subscription includes all the goods across the Outside Network, including full access to adventure films and TV shows on Outside Watch. I'm going to catch the digital release of this year's Warren Miller film on November 25. The entire Warren Miller archive is there. November 28th is the last day you'll be able to get 40% off this season. So if you're thinking about it, now's your chance. Find out more and get this deal at trailforks.com slash podcast. <laughs>